once was enough, right? The deeper stuff is scary. I, I mean, we, you know, uh, like I said last week when we kind of started on this track and down this road, you know, um, we, we understand relationships with God and, um, you know, we uh, want a relationship with God. And, but when we start talking about an intimate relationship with God, um, something deeper, something more meaningful. A lot of times we just are uncomfortable with that. We don't know what to do with that kind of an invitation. And again, a lot of times when we opt for religion over a relationship with God, it's going to look and it's going to sound a lot like what you saw. When, when we opt for religious approach to God, it's going to come across as very robotic. It's going to come across as very distant. There's going to be kind of a coldness and aloofness. Uh, there's just going to be kind of this sense that God's really in tune to the things that displease him. Uh, there's just going to be kind of a, a sense of we're just not sure how to relate, how to talk, how to kind of just be who God's created us to be. Um, when we're around him. And again, the, the, the Godhead, and we kind of started down this road last week. You know, when we talk about the Godhead, we're talking about the triune God. We're talking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, he is not looking. God is not looking uh, for people to kind of be robotic. Uh, he's looking for passionate pursuers, people who really want to kind of um, plumb the depths of who God is, uh, and, and really kind of press in and kind of just be um, open to allowing um, God to shower his love upon us, uh, to allow God just to kind of begin to set our hearts ablaze uh, for him. Um, and so I want to just kind of continue where we started last week and again, just talking about what does an intimate relationship with the Godhead, and again, we're talking, when I say Godhead, uh, it is a, it's a term Paul uses uh, in his writings, and it is a reference to uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, last week, we kind of started, and I'm just going to kind of go over uh, where we were a little bit last week, and when I'm talking about an intimate, uh, a deep, a, a, a connecting relationship with God, uh, what, I, what I mean by that is it is when the deepest parts of us um, commune, experience, partake, and uh, just fellowship with the uh, intimately deep parts of God. Intimacy with God uh, develops and is deepened when our hearts, and by that I don't, I'm not talking your physical organ, I'm talking your emotions, your desires, the things that make you passionate. When those things of you kind of begin to connect uh, with God's hearts. And when our hearts um, kind of are positioned before God, and we kind of just begin to set our affection, our pursuit upon him, God will respond in a way that he'll just begin to draw us nearer to himself, and he'll kind of just begin to lead us to that secret place where his presence dwells. Um, 
what that intimacy that we're talking about with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit looks like is just once you kind of begin to open your heart to that pursuit, that deepening of intimacy with God, he's just going to begin, and part of the way God is going to respond in that is he's just going to begin to awaken your heart to his word. You'll read things, and they will just come alive. Uh, they will they will connect emotionally, spiritually with you. He will awaken your heart to his presence. You'll, you will know the presence of God is in your midst. He will awaken your heart to his beauty. And, we're, and in the coming weeks, as we kind of uh, go down this road, I'm gonna talk about what the beauty of God is. And really, part of the beauty of God is his attributes, When God begins to shower mercy and kindness and his goodness and his love upon you, what he's revealing to you is part of his beauty. And so in that intimate pursuit that God is going to um, engage in with you, part of what he's going to do is he's just going to awaken your heart to his beauty. And he's going to begin to remove the obstacles and the barriers um, that would hinder or kind of block or interfere his love from flowing freely and fully within you. And that's, that's what God is after with us in that intimate relationship. So when our hearts uh, engage his heart, and that intimacy kind of begins and deepens, he will begin to allow us to see ourselves through his eyes. And he will increase, he will deepen, and he will mature his holy love uh, towards us. And then what that will do is it will begin to develop a love towards the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and it'll also begin to deepen and grow a love, um, not just for ourselves, but also um, for others. Uh, In that pursuit, God will kind of begin to open us up to the hope of his calling. God has a hope of his calling for you. And in intimacy, God wants to awaken your heart to what his hope is for you. He will increase the spirit of wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of himself. So you, you will begin to know God in deeper and more profound ways as, again, he opens the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of revelation uh, of himself to you. And again, this is just some of what you can expect uh, to manifest as God kind of draws your heart to himself in intimacy. Now, one of the things we discovered last week is that for all eternity, and again, this is a concept we can't even really get our minds around a lot of times. I mean, for us, we are so time-bound. We understand everything within the scope of time. God is beyond time, and, and we don't understand this sense of eternity. Um, but from eternity past to eternity 
future for all eternity, the Godhead, again, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, have existed in kind of this unified, glorious, intimate, triune fellowship. And we kind of illustrated that last week when I had some of the guys kind of come up, three guys, and they kind of formed a circle. And I, and I said to you, you know, no analogy is a perfect analogy, but just trying to give you this concept of this triune fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that have eternally existed. And in this fellowship, they are completely unified in thought. They're completely unified in purpose. They're completely unified in, in their plans uh, for uh, the world, for humanity. Uh, in this triune fellowship of the Godhead, we kind of talked about there just existed and their flow freely between the three of them, just the purest of love, of joy, grace, peace, mercy, kindness, gentleness, humility. I mean, every godly attribute you can think of, that just flows freely and, fl- and fully between that triune fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and, and what I, the picture I tried to leave you with last week was I got in the center of those three men and I said it was in this fellowship of the triune Godhead that God said in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. We were created in the midst of this glorious, beautiful, awesome marvelous beyond description, we were created in the midst of that. And then we kind of talked about how Adam, you know, chose to separate himself from that fellowship. Remember, it talks in there that, that you know, he walked with God in the garden. There was this intimate fellowship between Adam and the Godhead. And it says that he walked and he communed with God in the garden. And you remember, uh, they eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and sin separates them. And then we kind of depicted, you know, when Jesus came to earth, you know, again, he leaves his place takes on flesh, becomes a human being. He comes and he redeems mankind and and he dies for the sin that separated mankind from this holy triune fellowship And, and he pays the ultimate price and then he is crucified, he's resurrected. 40 days after that, he ascends back and he basically takes his place again in this triune fellowship. And the thing that's just, you know, blows my mind is that a man, a human being, Jesus took humanity back into that fellowship. And we talked about this last week when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That word way in the Greek, it, it, it literally means access. Jesus becomes our access back into that intimate triune fellowship where we were created, where we were originally designed to be a part of. And so we're looking at, again, 
how do we begin to live out of that, that secret place, that place where that fellowship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exists? We were created for that. We were redeemed for that. Jesus brought humanity back into that and then says, now I have become the, 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 the door. I'm, I am the access back into this intimate fellowship. And so again, he makes the choice. Jesus made the choice to leave his place in that triune fellowship, took on flesh and dwelt among us as Emmanuel, God with us. Going to the cross, he offers himself up as an atonement for the sins of mankind. He paid the price, sin demanded. And the wrath and the anger of God against sin is kind of fully, it is completely satisfied. Following the resurrection, he goes back into heaven, resumes his place and presence in this glorious, intimate, triune fellowship. And because of all that Jesus does there in the atoning work of the cross... He was able to restore, to redeem all that Adam and Eve forfeited there in the Garden of Eden. And again, he's now become that access, that doorway back into that intimate fellowship, sharing all. And again, we're being invited back into that to share and to experience all that is being exchanged there among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have been invited back in. We talked about that scripture um, where, where Paul says we're, we're no longer just far off. We have been brought near. We've been brought back into that through uh, Christ Jesus. Not just to receive all that is being expressed in that, but then now to be kind of reciprocators of those godly attributes back to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as well as to one another. First John 4:19 says, "We love him being God because he first loved us." So as we take our place as we enter back in as we access what Jesus has cleared the way for us to receive, as we take our rightful place back in to this glorious intimate triune fellowship and experience and receive in the holy love that again is being freely and fully shared between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are then able to kind of receive the love of God and then to be able to return the love of God um, that we have received from him. This is why it takes God to love God. We, We can't We can't do this on our own. We can't muster up enough love to love God. That is why he first loved us. So again, we are, when we begin to receive the love of God, we can take that and begin to channel that back to God and we can begin to channel that to others. That's why it takes God to love God. God supplies us with the love we're called to love him with and one another. And it's this way with all of the godly attributes Okay, we are only able to share what we have received in what is being expressed among the Godhead. Does that make sense? We are only able to share what we receive in, be, in what is being expressed between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and, and it is in that secret 
place. I, I mean, it's that sweet spot um, in, that, in, in the center of that triune fellowship where we find true communion. It is here where God begins to shape and to mold and to chisel us more and more into the image of his son. And it is here where we find glorious transformation going from glory to glory. Isn't that awesome? I mean, it, it, I, I just, it escapes me to understand the fullness of what I'm saying to you. Um, just sitting and working on this, you know, these last couple of weeks, I, I just get lost in this stuff. Because when you really begin to understand this, when you really begin to understand what God is trying to do, what God is offering us, it's mind-blowing. It is just mind-blowing. So tonight, I want to kind of just begin to lay some really important um, groundwork, some foundations for growing in this um, godly attribute of his holy love. And I think it's just really going to help us to pave um, the way, as, as I believe, we just kind of move more and more uh, towards that intimacy uh, with God. So over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to just share with you, and I shouldn't say weeks, I should say the next several Wednesday nights that I'm teaching, um, I want to just share with you kind of seven foundations um, that I believe are crucial to understand if we're going to grow and thrive in our intimacy um, with God. Again, these foundations will also help us learn the best way to respond and deal with sin in our lives. First foundation that we need to understand, spiritual immaturity and rebellion are not the same. Spiritual immaturity and rebellion against God, they are not the same thing, but we often mistake them for the same thing. Now in some ways, spiritual immaturity um, and rebellion look the same outwardly and, and how they manifest. Now many Christians falsely believe or there, there's an accusation against them either by themselves or by the enemy that they are rebellious against God um, and Really, the truth of the matter is what you're experiencing isn't rebellion against God. What you're experiencing is spiritual immaturity. And one reason why we oftentimes think that immaturity and rebellion are one and the same is because on some occasions, they look the same outwardly. They'll, they'll kind of manifest themselves in similar ways. Now, rebellion and immaturity may outwardly look the same, but the difference really comes down to the heart, the attitude, the intention of the person. The scripture makes it very, very clear that, that God and God alone is able to look beyond the outward appearance, and God is able to look and to really perceive the true nature of the human heart. And, and again, it is a huge, huge mistake, and it is a potentially destructive deception to see ourselves as rebellious if in truth we are really just experiencing spiritual immaturity or weakness. Now, one way to understand the difference between rebellion against God and spiritual weakness is to look at sheep and pigs getting stuck in mud. Now, if you take a pig out of a mud hole, the first thing they are gonna do is they're gonna look for another mud hole. That's just what pigs do. 
okay? It's in their heart. It's their desire. It is their DNA. They want to be in the mud. On the other hand, when a sheep gets stuck in the mud, they will fight like crazy to free themselves from the mud, even though they may have walked into that mud with their eyes fully wide open. Uh, They will do whatever they've got to do. Their desire is to get out of that mud, to stay out of that mud at all cost. Now you take that analogy and you kind of begin to bring that down to a personal level, a personal application. And what you get is, uh, let's say you're kind of reflecting on a sin issue in your life. You've said or you've done something that you know is not right um, or good. And so the question is, are you crying out to God for forgiveness and deliverance from this area you've stumbled in, or are you crying out to just get away with it so you can do it again? Get me out of this mud so that when God gets you out of it, you can just go and find another mud hole. So we all know people who get caught in their sin, and they're really not sorry about what they did. They're more sorry they just got caught. And politicians are masters at this. So again, how does a person know? How do you know if you're dealing with spiritual immaturity, spiritual weakness, or rebellion against God? Well, the fact that the difference would even matter to you is a tip-off that you're probably dealing more with spiritual immaturity, spiritual weakness, than you are outright rebellion against God. Spiritually immature people are those who are concerned I mean, it bothers you uh, if you're offending God, if you're doing something that you know uh, is not pleasing to God or, or, it's, or it's injuring your relationship with him. It bothers you and, and, and you want to do something about it. Whereas the rebellious, they couldn't care less. Even though they may outwardly appear to be that way, again, God's able to look beyond that to see to the heart, to the intent um, of the person. Now you see this, uh, there's, a, there's a great example of this spiritual immaturity, this weakness, and this rebellion uh, between King David and King Saul, okay? King David, he kind of presents a very graphic picture at least to me, of someone who is spiritually immature. I mean, David has these times, these seasons in life where you see he's dealing with spiritual weakness. But yet at the same time, he also possesses this really sincere, passionate drive and desire to obey and follow after God. I mean, David comes to this realization. He comes to this understanding. He comes to this revelation that God delighted in him. That God saw him as a man who was after his own heart, even in the midst of his weakness and his struggles. Man, that is a revelation I would love for all of us to get a hold of. That God delights in you, 
even in the midst of spiritual weakness and spiritual struggles. See, a lot of us have bought into this image of God that God is waiting for us to reach a certain level of perfection, that God's kind of waiting for us to reach a a level uh, of spiritual maturity before God really begins to delight and love us. We, We don't understand this concept that God can love us, that God can delight in us, even in those times where we are spiritually weak and and struggling spiritually. David comes to this revelation, this place where he begins to understand God loves me even in spite of those times where I have struggled uh, spiritually, where I have have embraced spiritual weakness. God still delights in me. And he came to discover that God's love was fully towards him even while he was in the process of maturity. Again, we think, oh, we've got to reach a certain level of maturity. David kind of saw God's love fully for him even in the process of maturing. That's just, that's awesome. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. I mean, he, he has her husband murdered to cover the child conceived in the adulterous affair. And when David is finally confronted by the prophet Nathan and David's sin is just fully revealed, David responds with a full, open-hearted repentance to God. As a matter of fact, if you want to read David's confession to the Lord for his sin with Bathsheba, read Psalm 51. Let me give you just a couple of verses kind of give you a a taste of what David uh, confessed to the Lord. Beginning in verse one, he says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and you are blameless when you judge. I mean, David completely fell down in sin. This guy blew it in ways none of us will ever come close to blowing it. He would recognize it. And in the midst of that, he would rise back up in sincere, wholehearted confession and repentance to the Lord. Instead of just making excuses or making it part of his lifestyle of compromise. Now, that's David. King Saul was a whole different story. I mean, there's a great example of King Saul's rebellion against God in 1 Samuel 15. It's at this point that Saul, he's been anointed as king over Israel, and God instructed him to go in and to completely wipe out uh, the wicked Amalekites. And so God very, very specifically says to Saul, 
that I want you to destroy that entire nation. Every man, every woman, every child, I do not want you to leave one alive. I also want you to wipe out their entire livestock, every animal I want you to destroy. So Saul goes and he wages war against the Amalekites and he destroys everyone except Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and Saul also spared the best of their livestock. So the word of the Lord comes to the prophet Samuel that Saul had disobeyed and rebelled against God's command. When Saul sees Samuel, he tells him that he has done what God told him to do. And some of you may remember that wonderful response of Samuel's. He said, then where is the sound of that bleeding sheep and the lowing of the oxen coming from? I I hear the sound of animals. Where, oh where, Saul, is that coming from? In other words, Samuel is kind of letting Saul in on the fact that he knows Saul disobeyed and rebelled against the lords of the command. Now, I want you to see how Saul's reaction to that revelation differs from when Nathan confronted David with his sin. Saul begins to make excuses as to why he spared the best of the livestock. And and he says, you know what? I did that because I want to use that as a sacrifice. I want to use that as an offering to the Lord. And so Samuel says in response to Saul, he says, hey, God told you specifically to utterly, completely, totally destroy the Amalekite nation as well as their livestock, and you you deliberately, willingly disobeyed the Lord. And in verse 22, Samuel asks Saul, he says, what is more pleasing to the Lord? your burnt offerings and sacrifice, or your obedience to his voice? That's a great question for us. Listen, he said, obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. And then he goes on and he makes this analogy. He says, rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft. And stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. And then he says, so because you have rejected, rebelled against the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Stiff price to pay. Saul's disobedience, his rebellion, and more importantly again, his lack of sincere, wholehearted, open confession and repentance cost him his position, his place as anointed king over Israel. Now, what is even more telling and more revealing about the character, the heart of Saul, again, look at what he does in verse 30. It says, then Saul pleaded again. He says, I know I have sinned. But at least, he says, will you do me just this much? At least honor me 
before the elders of my people and before Israel by coming back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. Not the Lord our God, not the Lord my God, the Lord your God. In other words, Saul kind of just says, look, can we just kind of pretend here that everything is okay? Can can we just kind of pretend that everything is okay? Can we kind of just put a smiley face on this? Uh, Don't embarrass me. Don't reveal my sinful actions. Uh, I've got my image here to maintain. So would you at least just give me, do me the honor of kind of coming back with me and making it look like everything is okay? So again, you kind of begin to see what was more important to Saul. And you see what was more important to David. And again, you see this attitude of Saul's so much throughout his reign as king over Israel. And unlike King Saul, when David sinned again, his heart was wounded. I mean, his spirit was grieved. Even though he did some egregious things, there was kind of just this sense of heaviness on David's heart when he did these things. When, when Saul sinned, it's kind of like he just schemed. I mean, he kind of looked for compromises, ways maybe to kind of blame or to kind of skirt the issue of what was happening. And, and he kind of just looked for ways to kind of just continue on with that sin. Um, And then when he was confronted, he kind of just gives this half-hearted, you know, kind of an outward show um, and token of repentance. So again, let me just kind of talk about three general responses um, to sin. The first response is sin's not important. It's not a big deal. I think we are seeing that response to sin more and more and more in our culture. And not just in the secular culture, I'm talking in the church. We're seeing more and more of this attitude um, in response to sin in the church. This is a person who, who likes to use the grace of God kind of as a covering or an excuse for their sinful behavior. Uh, they'll, they'll commit sins and they do not feel the need to repent of it, to turn from it, because they kind of live under this illusion that the grace of God will kind of just cover over that. The love of God will kind of will, will cover over the multitude of my sins. This is a person again, who wrongly concludes that God's just kind of okay, that God understands. God's just going to kind of go along and overlook the sins because we are in this dispensation of God's grace uh, without disciplining the one who sins. 1 Peter 2.16 says, for you are free, yet you are God's servant or God's slaves. So he says, don't use this glorious freedom as an excuse to do evil. In like manner, we're not to use the grace of God as kind of a license to sin without repentance, without confessing to God what we are doing, that it's sinful. And then again, repentance is simply turning away from that and going in the opposite direction. So that's the first response to sin, is it's not important, it's it's not that big of a deal. Second response to sin is, sin is the most important 
It is the defining reality about us. Sin is the most important. I mean, it, it is where I put all of my emphasis. It is the defining reality about us. This is a person who sees the sin in their life as greater, as stronger, and more defining of who they are than seeing themselves and defining themselves um, by the grace of God or how God sees them. Um, I see this approach in recovery programs like Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm all for Alcoholics Anonymous. I think it's a great support group. I've seen many, many people get help. That, so this is, I'm not putting this down. I'm just kind of pointing something out. I think all 12-step recovery programs use the same approach so you can apply it. Uh, I'm just using Alcoholics Anonymous because that's the one we're probably uh, most of us in this room are more familiar with. And one of the things that I really feel like that they do in this kind of just this defining reality um, is it's always, you know, hello, my name is, I am an alcoholic. I mean, you can be 30 years into your sobriety and you're still referring to yourself as an alcoholic. Now, I understand the, the whole premise in that is that, you know, once an alcoholic, they believe always an alcoholic, that you're always just one drink away from falling off the wagon, no matter how many years you've been on that. But again, it's just this sense that you kind of continue to carry that same identity about yourself regardless of how you have changed and turned your life um, around. Um, now, if you're born again, if you are a Christian, the Bible says that your identity, who you are, is no longer the same. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. Now what Paul's saying there is he's saying if anyone is in Christ, if you are a believer, he's saying your core identity has undergone a radical, complete transformation and we no longer need to identify ourselves or cling to those things that were associated with past sins or struggles. So if you're born again, if you're a son, a daughter of the Most High God, if you are, you know, again, uh, um, a believer, this is your new identity. And you need to now see yourself for who you are in Christ. The Bible says, I am the righteousness of God by virtue of what Jesus Christ has done. I'm the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. So we need to see ourselves for who we are. We are the beloved of God. You are favored of God. So you really need to begin to see yourself for who you are as that creation, not by what you have done or by what you have not done. The blood of Christ uh, is greater, it is stronger, it is more powerful than all sins combined. So that is that second uh, approach um, by which we come into sin. Something that was very, very interesting um, to me, I'll, I'll, I'll just kind of share, this is kind of, I think, a nuance of this second one. Um, I kind of, I grew up in a, in a very abusive family. Um, 
And so whenever I did anything wrong, I mean, it was just magnified. I mean, there would be times that um, I would sit and I would listen to my mom. You know, I would do something wrong and my mom would like just call everybody that she knew. And I would, I would sit right there in the room and I would just listen to her tear me to shreds. I mean, still to this day, most of my relatives think I am a complete jerk and a creep. And uh, I mean, it's just, I have no relationship with these people because there's nothing good or positive they see about me. Um, And, you know, they're half right on most of that anyway. But the fact of the matter is, what ended up happening to me um, was... I kind of grew up with this sense where, and, and I mean, I still struggle with this today. I, I, Pastor uh, Mark and Pastor Jason and I, we were talking about this a, a couple of weeks ago. And I said, you know, there, there is kind of this um, place, you know, over here is kind of disappointment. You know, you do something wrong uh, you do something that you regret, and you feel disappointed, right? I mean, I mean you, you, you can feel disappointed in yourself. Why did I do that? Why did I say that? I should have known better. I do know better. So there's kind of this sense of disappointment on, on one end of that spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum is self-loathing. And, and it's not that you're disappointed. I mean, you do something wrong, and it doesn't matter how big or small that wrong is, I would feel this absolute self-loathing. And it, it dawned on me that, that that's what I was doing. Now, the interesting thing was, I was sharing this with, I was sharing this with Pastor Mark and Jason, and I, and I said to them, how do you guys deal with that? You wonder what Pastor Mark said to me? He said, I don't even see those as the option." I said, I didn't realize there was another option. He said, you know, I don't, I don't even allow myself to be disappointed because I see who I am in Christ. That's what defines me. So I was like, I like that. And so I'm, I'm working, I mean, I, I, and I struggled, you know, this with Janie. I mean, it is like, you know, something happens in our relationship and I, I, I am so, I am so upset with myself. Um, it, it, and and I, I'll, I'll find ways of, of kind of punishing myself. I'm not, I don't go to the you know, extent of hurting myself or anything like that, but I will do things to punish myself because that is how strong of a defining reality that, that was for me. And so I'm kind of in this process right now. I'm just being honest with you. I'm just kind of in this process right now of, of trying not to just get away from the, you know, because I kind of at first saw myself really trying to go away from the self-loathing more to the disappointment. I just want to be disappointed. You know, disappointment to me would be great. If I could just do something and feel disappointed, I would feel like that is, I've, I'm making progress. But now I'm really kind of setting my sights towards, I really want to, I, I want to really kind of come to that place where I can begin to struggle with my immaturity, with my weakness, and still be able to feel, to receive, and to benefit from God's full love towards me. So I, I will tell you 
just so you kind of know where I am coming from, I probably see myself a lot more in this second description. Um, but now that I'm aware of it, I, I really feel like I've been able to really kind of make some, some, um, some huge moves towards uh, allowing God to lead me out of that into a place of greater freedom. Third response to sin is sin is serious, but if repented of, it is forgiven and forgotten. I, I believe this too, but I still struggle in that second area. Um, so again, the third response to sin, sin is serious, and, and it is. And again, we live in a culture where we're just blurring the lines of a lot of things that, that are, were considered once um, sinful, um, and thus not as powerful um, as God's grace in defining your life. So sin is serious, but it's not greater. It's not more powerful. It's not more influential. It's not more defining than God's grace in your life. Now again, this is, this is what I would call the biblical balanced approach between the other two extremes um, in our approach to sin. So the question becomes for us, are you a slave of sin who struggles to love God or are you a lover of God who struggles with sin and has times of spiritual weakness? It is imperative that we come to see ourselves before God by defining ourselves, seeing ourselves, positioning ourselves as lovers, as pursuers of God, and not by our struggles, not by our weaknesses. We acknowledge our struggles, we're aware of our weaknesses, but again, our core identity, who we are in Christ, is first and foremost, we see ourselves striving and pursuing to become wholehearted, passionate lovers of God who struggle and have seasons of, of spiritual immaturity, of spiritual weakness. Uh, again, the biblical response of, and dealing with and repenting over sin in our lives is we gotta admit it. You gotta admit, come to terms with what you did was wrong, what you did was sinful, Okay, we don't justify it, we don't rationalize it, we don't excuse it away, we don't blame others, we don't blame Satan, um, we don't pretend it didn't happen, we recognize it, we admit it, and then we take responsibility for what we did, we recognize it is sinful. First John 1.10 says, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. So when you sin, be honest, be open, be transparent about that. If the word of God says we've sinned, uh, what we've uh, done is sin, and we say it's not, then essentially we're calling God a liar and, the, and we're dismissing uh, the truth of, of his word uh, in and over our lives. Second, again, take responsibility for the sin. Don't shift or blame others. This is the first thing. Again, we see Adam does this uh, there in the Garden of Eden after they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis 3.12, Adam makes this charge. He says, this woman you, God, gave to be with me. She gave me from the tree and I ate. It's her fault. And ultimately, it's your fault because you're the one who created her. You're the one that gave her to me. So it's her fault and it's more your fault. So again, Adam blames God, then blames Eve. Eve blames the ser serpent. And so we have, again, just acquired this you know, game of passing the buck quite naturally. Uh, well, and again, here's the thing. You will never, ever make much progress in your spiritual growth and in your maturity 
until you learn to take responsibility for the sin in your life. Third, take sin seriously and then commit yourself to dealing with it quickly. Because if we fail to take it serious and deal with it in a decisive biblical way, it is going to hinder and it will damage your relationship with the Lord as well as your relationship with others. Again, uh, the Bible gives us a way to deal with this. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The blood of Christ was shed to ensure our forgiveness. And there is nothing, there is no sin, uh, there's no magnitude of sin, there's, there's no multiplicity of sin that is greater than the blood of Jesus Christ. So again, if we do not get this right in our hearts, if we fail to position our hearts, if we fail to position ourselves correctly before God on this one, any satisfaction or fulfillment in our pursuit of intimacy with God, it's just gonna be very, very difficult. It's gonna be beyond our reach to attain. If we see ourselves before God and define ourselves first and foremost uh, by our struggles with sin, again, we'll never, ever, we'll, 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 we'll be doing this all the time with God. We'll be playing the religious game. We'll be using the religious language. We're gonna do everything we can, again, to remain distant and cold and aloof from God. And until we position ourselves correctly on this first foundation and understand that spiritual immaturity, spiritual weakness is not the same as rebellion, it's gonna be impossible to go on. Second foundation, and I'm just gonna give you this one and we're gonna end it and we're gonna pick up on this Next sentence, second foundation for growing in love and intimacy with the Godhead is we have the assurance and confidence of God's enjoyment of us in our spiritual immaturity. This is one, folks, I continue to pursue. This is one I just, I'm asking God, God, make this more and more of a reality to me. That God enjoys us He delights in us, even in our spiritual immaturity and weakness. Again, this is a foreign, this was a foreign concept for me. I'm guessing it's a foreign concept for a lot of you because this is, you've been raised in religion and religion teaches you when you do wrong things, God is mad at you and we do a lot of wrong things. For some of you here tonight, this we I'm not just moving furniture around. I'm throwing furniture out for some of you tonight because you do not have this truth. You bought into a lie that tells you that until you get your life together, until you kind of do it all perfectly all the time, God is not gonna delight in you. God is not going to find any enjoyment in you until you are perfectly living it. And I'm just telling you, it, it, it ain't gonna happen. That's religion. That is religion. God is looking to impart into your heart tonight, into my heart, that he delights in us, that he enjoys us, even while we are in process to spiritual maturity. And again, that, that is where you gotta have the Holy Spirit just come in and begin to impress that upon your heart. 
Um, and again, it, and, and until you do, you're just going to keep God at a distance. Uh, and God wants to break through that, and God wants to begin to delight in you. He wants to begin to shower enjoyment on you as you are in process to becoming spiritually mature. Let's pray. Uh, we're, uh, I'm, we're out of time. Father.